tonight. It's my intent to finish this, this chapter. So many amazing details. We're walking through the foundation series. Um, I, I really tried, I honestly did, to get all of chapter 42 in this morning. And I found myself, no matter how hard I tried, I could either finish the four points and not go into any depth in the implications, which was not something that I desired, or I could do what I did, and you know which direction I I chose. Um, I thought giving the implications tonight would miss a good number of people, so I gave the implications this morning. We're going to finish it up tonight, and and I'm going to show you a um, a sub theme, which is running through Genesis 42. Genesis 42 brings the brothers back into back into the picture, and it's really the narrative. Uh, the narrator, Moses, tells it from from a really from Joseph's point of view, and. Um, we're going to look at it tonight from, when you get to the last point, you get to see it from a different angle. You get to see it from the brother's point of view. And then finally, the father's point uh, of view. And as I broke down the passage, I began to look at, at Genesis 42. Um, one of the first things that I noticed was the brothers affirming when they were, whenever they were, uh, they were given an answer to Joseph. They said, we are honest men. We are men of integrity. Now, obviously, what you know about the brothers, that should jump out at you. And then I noticed it again whenever they repeated it to their father. When they had a chance to tell her father, what happened? You came back without Simeon. I mean, what is it? Every time I send you out, you guys always come back with one less brother. They repeat again. They tell him the story. And they tell the father Jacob... We said to the guy in Egypt, we're honest men. They lead with that, as I'll show you tonight. So, so that caught my, my attention. And then as we begin to look at, at a couple of other things I'll show you tonight, you will see a defiled conscience of ten uh, men. These brothers, the power of a guilty conscience is, is upon them. And it's affecting their life, it's affecting the way that they're interpreting things, the way that they, they view things. And, and the power of a guilty conscience can't be underestimated. And so while we're going to finish this, the, the story tonight, I'm going to show you how they responded to their guilty conscience, and hopefully it will help you and will help me to learn how we can quiet ours and maybe how to tell whenever we, whenever we had one. And we said this morning that that the, the theme of the chapter is really about the examination. The majority of chapter 42 centers on the examination of the brothers. You have this picture in Canaan in the beginning, the first five verses, described to us nothing's really changed. You have the father still playing, Jacob still playing favorites, the brothers still have a bad report, they're not worth any more 20 years later than they were 20 years before. The only thing really different in Canaan is there's a famine and that famine is, is threatening the family. And then when you end chapter 42, as we'll see tonight, you end up back in Canaan, and the exact same thing is taking place. You will, chapter 42 will end the same place that it began. But the, 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 the meat the, between the, 
between the two pieces of bread, the sandwich, if you will, is this examinations, multiple tests that Joseph places upon his brothers to see if they're changed life. So we talked about learning to trust again, examining a person for change, and then governing our lives by faith in the gospel. Because Joseph, everything he does is not motivated by vengeance. It's rooted in faith in, in the gospel. It's rooted in faith in the promise that God gave to Abraham. We said there were four scenes. We had the unchanged household. You had the unexpected meeting. You had an undisclosed examination. And what I mean by that is it wasn't disclosed to the brothers that they were under examination. They were sweating bullets, as, as it said, especially when they spent three days in jail and whenever they watched Joseph bind Simeon right in their presence. And we're going to cover the last one tonight, the unconvinced, unconvinced uh, father. After two decades of time as a slave, many years in prison, many years in the court of Pharaoh, Joseph is hard at work, and he looks up and he sees his, his brothers. Um, I don't know that I saw the significance of that, until I started studying it, just thinking about he hadn't seen him for 20 years, he's going through everyday life, and all of a sudden he's adjudicating his duties as second in command, and he looks up and he sees his brothers. That would be a pretty arresting sight. He applies five tests to them. Test one, what have they done with Benjamin? Could they produce Benjamin? What would they do with a brother who's just like Joseph? Test two, would anybody volunteer to go when he says, I'm going to keep all nine of you here and send one home? Test three, when he changes it up, will someone volunteer to stay? I'm going to keep one of you here and send all nine of you. Test four, will somebody come back for Simeon whenever Joseph picks Simeon, binds him in his presence, he recreates the the same scenario that he was in. And then he really turns the fire up, as we said this morning, with the fifth test when he hides the money down in the, down the sacks of, of grain. And so we ended this morning with, not only do they have to return with Benjamin to regain Simeon in order to prove they're honest men, but they're going to have to return with money that could be used to prove that they're dishonest, and then all of their necks are, are on the line. Or the other option is to forget their brother take the money, lie to their father, and save their own skins, which they have a track record of doing. And because they have that track record, their consciences are defiled. Look if you would at verse 27. It's the unconvinced father, verses 29 through 38. We'll get run and start of it in verse, verse 20, 27. But as one of them opened his sacks to give his donkey feed in the encampment, they stopped somewhere on the way home and staying overnight, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. And so he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Look! That's basically what he's saying. And their hearts, plural, it's all of them, failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has has done to us. Verse 28 says that they were distraught. 
Um, as I said this morning, earlier, their hearts stopped. And what is this that God has done to us is a telling statement, isn't it? It's a reference to their, to their unforgiving consciences and that, that it was rightly defiled. Now, if you want in detail to be reminded uh, about the doctrine of the conscience, uh, we did a four-part series several years ago that you can go back and get that from Romans chapter 1. Just big picture, your conscience is your soul's or the soul's warning device. Everyone has one, believers or unbelievers. It's the servant to the law that God has written on every heart. The Bible says that all men, mankind, is made in the image of God. That image has been, has been marred because of the fall. It's been tainted. It's affected us. Affected our minds, sin has affected our minds, the fall has affected our minds, it's affected our spirit, and it's affected our physical bodies. And it's also affected the conscience, but the conscience is still there. It's being made in the image of God is, is what, what you find every living human being. And you also find that God says He's placed there His law, He stamped their law, His law on, on human beings' hearts. And the conscience is, is a warning device that responds to that law that's, that's there. It's a servant of the law that's written on every person's heart. Now, the conscience is not um, perfect. It's not um, infallible. The conscience responds to what your mind understands to be the law, to be right or, or wrong part of the reference that Paul makes there about the Gentiles uh, following the law, even though they didn't have the Mosaic Code, the law that was in their heart, the light that they have. In that situation, you or any person that doesn't maybe doesn't know the Ten Commandments, doesn't know anything about the law of, of God, there's, there is enough light in them, there's enough law stamped on their heart to where they know that there is a moral right and a moral wrong, and the conscience is this is this thing that God has given them that goes off whenever that, that law is, is violated. You, think, you might think of it like a smoke detector or maybe a kitchen timer. Do you have a kitchen timer that just aggravates you to death whenever it goes off? To the point that I mean, you've got to physically go over there and punch the button. It doesn't go off till you punch the button. Well, that's the re- they make a kitchen timer to aggravate you. So you'll go turn it off, so you'll know. I mean, if it was pleasant, then when it went off, you wouldn't know that something was burning. And the kitchen timer only goes off when you turn it off. Whenever you go touch it, whenever you, you, you flip the switch or punch the button, and the conscience is the same way. It's, it's turned off by confession. This is important. Your conscience is not a source of revelation. You hear what I said? Your conscience is not a source of revelation. It's a servant to the revelation that you have. Your conscience is not a source. It's a servant to the knowledge of God already in you. And its role is not to teach us what is right or wrong, but to hold us accountable to the highest standard of godliness that we already know. 
the conscience, your conscience, holds you accountable to what you believe to be right and wrong. Your conscience can be instructed rightly. Your conscience can be instructed wrongly. That's the whole point of Romans 14. The weak conscience and the strong conscience. You can have a hyper-conscience. You can have a mature conscience. Weak, strong. Your conscience responds to what you understand. It's a, it's a servant of the knowledge of God that you already have. It's not a source of, of revelation. It serves revelation. And it's not there to teach us, but to hold us accountable. And when the conscience, when your conscience senses that your motives and actions are congruent with the law that we perceive, with the morality that that we believe, that we understand, it affirms you. When your motives and actions, your conscience holds court in your mind, and says, okay, was your motives pure? Were your motives pure? What about your actions? Yes. Both of those things together, you feel good. Conscience affirms you. The smoke detector doesn't go off. It's based upon what you understand the morality to be. When your conscience judges your thinking and your behavior wrong, you could do the right thing for the wrong motives, or... You can have the right motive, but do the wrong thing. When it judges our thinking or behavior wrong, it sounds the alarm. And, and if you press forward, you violate that conscience. And if you violate your conscience, your conscience can become defiled. And it will continue to sound, it will continue to be offended until you go to the kitchen timer and you turn it off. Until you confess. And the brothers had violated their consciences. These brothers knew that what they had done to Joseph was wrong. They had the wrong motives and the wrong actions, and their conscience bothered them. We said back in verse 4, when Jacob would not send Benjamin with the brothers, it was because what happened to Joseph was fresh in in his mind. What happened to Joseph was fresh. What the brothers did to Joseph was fresh in their minds. And you can see that all through... Chapter 42, there's a reminder of their guilty conscience peppered throughout the story, but this verse 28 that we just read is really the crescendo. When he says, what is this that God has done to us? That's like the capstone, but there's a bunch before that. And I think you can see in here four consequences, not an all-inclusive list, but you can see at least four consequences of a guilty conscience here. The first one I think that you can see with these brothers is is a guilty conscience will will make you defensive. If you're taking notes, I would just put this under the fourth point. This is what I see in the brother's life, but you can see I'll show you. A guilty conscience will will make you defensive, and you can see the brothers are very defensive. Look at verse ten. Then Joseph remembered the dreams, and he said, Your spies, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. There's, I think, is the first evidence that their conscience has been violated. Guilty conscience will make you defensive. They're defending themselves. They describe themselves as honest men. The word means forthright. It's, this is like the person who starts the conversation with, Now, it's not what you're thinking. And you know immediately it's exactly what, that's exactly what it is. 
the defensiveness here, the fact that they're defending themselves, they're putting forth, we're honest men, comes from their guilty conscience. I'm sure you're familiar with the quote from, from Shakespeare, Hamlet, where he said, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Right? It's become an idiom for a guilty party. It's sort of the person that profusely tries to defend themselves over and over and over, and it's like, okay, it's probably an issue here. The brothers also repeat this claim to their father. Look over at verse 29. It says, Then they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him what happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us. He was mean to us, Daddy. And the land, and he took us for spies. But we said to him, We are honest men. You just see this conversation took place? They lead with this. They changed the order. Back whenever they spoke to Joseph, they said, No, my Lord, but we're servants to come to buy food. We're all one man's son. We're honest men. Here they lead. We told him, we're honest men. When they were pressed, they, they didn't start with, we're honest men. So what I just read was the second time they, they respond. They try to assert their integrity whenever they're pressed. But with Jacob, who already knows their character, who already is suspicious of them, they start with the defense of their character up front. You know, it's hard not to refrain from defending. I'm sorry, it's not hard to refrain from defending yourself if you've done nothing wrong. I mean, if you're accused wrongly and you know it's wrong, you're like, well, I know I didn't do anything wrong. Just stand there. Someone falsely accuses you, then somebody falsely falsely accuses you. But you find it almost necessary, if there's even the slightest twinge of guilt of trying to give a reason for why you did what you did and, and how these circumstances came about. And a person who is free before God, who knows all and sees all, can trust the same God with the knowledge to, to defend Him. But, but a guilty conscience will make you defensive. And you see the brothers are very defensive here. Guilty conscience will also fill you with fear. Look at verse 21. And they did so, and then they said to one another, this is the scene where where Joseph changes the story, changes the deal, and says, let one of your brothers be confined, the other nine go, bring your youngest brother back to me and you'll not surely die. And And then they begin to speak in Hebrew, and they don't think that Joseph can understand because they have an interpreter there. And they, they begin to talk and out loud, and they're talking amongst themselves. We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul, and he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They're filled with fear. Their brother's conscience, the brother's conscience begins to bother them. Now, I want you to notice what they say in that, that verse and what they don't say. They're not repenting here. There's no confession to God. Their theology is actually put on display. It's, a, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's, 
they do acknowledge that they did wrong, but they're concluding that bad things are befalling them because of what they've done. They're just saying, we're just getting repaid. This is like bad karma, I guess. And it shows their theology. In their minds, they're just getting what, what they deserve. But this is not a confession to God. They're not, not repenting here. They think they're being punished for being callous and indifferent for their brother. And it's very graphic. Joseph has to leave. And he dismisses himself and weeps. It's, it's very graphic. You know, if you go back to chapter 37, we're just told basically Joseph's thrown in the pit and then he's sold to the Ishmaelites and he's gone. And here you kind of get a picture of, of actually what took place. And it's not pretty. Look at what they say. It says here, um, verse 21, right? We saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this, this, the distress has, this distress has come upon us all. It's a, it's a picture. They, they saw the anguish, the terror of his soul. Here's a 17-year-old boy who is terrified, and they're, they're remembering his face, and they're hearing his cries. He pleaded with us. It literally means he begged them, please, please don't do this. Don't send me away. And they would not hear. And that's a pretty guilty conscience. If you're seeing that and that's replaying in your mind, you can understand why they're thinking, man, we're just getting what we deserve here. And a person with a guilty conscience will live in constant fear. And any bad thing that happens, they'll attribute to, to what they've done, right? It's like the guy, that, the, the guy who didn't pay his tithe or didn't do what he thought he was supposed to do as far as giving is concerned and... And he misses it on Sunday and Monday. His truck breaks down and he goes, Oh, man, God's getting me back for not giving my money, right? It's like the pastor who asked, was asked by the evangelist to play golf and he had told the church that you know we're going to focus on visitation this week and yet he didn't want to offend his friend and he goes out to the first, first hole and, and a ball comes flying in from another group and it hits him right on the head. He immediately cries out, I knew I shouldn't have come. Any bad thing, a guilty conscience, any bad thing that happens, you attribute that. The, the, the person attributes it. And that's exactly what the brothers are doing here. Their conscience is violated and that made them fearful. And think on the flip side. On the first, I don't know, 10 or 20 verses I ever memorized, Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked, those who know they're not right with God, those who have defiled consciences, they're afraid of everything. They, they flee even when there's nothing to flee from. But the righteous are bold as a lion. They stand. What, what, do, I have, what do I have to fear? And a clear conscience will make you bold and fearless. And they're talking and discussing amongst themselves, and this is a this is a group discussion. It says we are truly guilty in verse twenty one concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish. I mean they're all talking amongst themselves, and Reuben breaks in the discussion 
And he attempts to justify himself. And that's number three. A guilty conscience will look for someone else to blame. You'll be defensive, you'll be full of fear, and you'll blame shift. You'll look for somebody else to blame. Look at verse 22. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Reuben answered, There's no question recorded. I mean, they're all talking amongst themselves. Hey, this is falling on our heads because of what we did. I mean, do you remember? I mean, he was crying. Wish I could see his face. Oh. And Reuben answers, and there's no question even recorded. And what does Reuben say? He starts defending himself. <laughs> did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Is that what Reuben did? They all say to one another, Reuben blurts out, don't look at me. His motive is to justify himself, even though he was guilty. I mean, back in chapter 37, he convinces the brothers, don't shed his blood and then throw him in his cistern. Just take him out in the wilderness and throw him in his cistern and let him die there. Then they get the idea to sell him into slavery. And Reuben's whole motive is so he can be the hero to the father, and then he finds out that he's already gone. He's been sold, and they've got the pocket full of money. He partakes in the money, and then he falls in with the brothers and, and goes back. But he's the first one to say, Hey, I told you. I mean, this is like a drunk saying, Well, at least I'm not a drug addict. Right? Reuben is deflecting blame and setting himself up. He's also setting himself up for the one not to be left behind. I think the oldest would be the candidate. Tell me, Reuben, you're the oldest. You, you should stay and the other nine brothers go. And Reuben's going, hey, I don't I have any part of this. I mean, I, I told you not to shed his blood. I mean, don't look at me. Therefore, I don't need to stay here. One of you guys need to stay here. Verse 23 has some interesting participles. It says, the group confesses, we would not hear. Reuben indicts them and passes blame. You would not hear. But Joseph heard and understood everything. Verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them. He spoke. We would not hear, says the group. Reuben says, you would not hear. And Joseph hears everything. And he can't contain himself. But still goes through with his plan. Because he knows it would be best for the brothers. And that brings us to the where we, where we started. A guilty conscience condemns a man before God. Verse 28. What is this that God has done? Guilty conscience condemns a man before, before God. They understood the significance of having the money, didn't they? They know that it places scrutiny on their story about being honest, and they know they're not. I mean, if they didn't have a guilty conscience, they say, Hey, man, look at this. I mean, we got the grain, and we got the money too. Praise the Lord. 
What is this wonderful thing that God has done for us? But that's not what they say. Because they know exactly the significance and they know what they've done. Earlier they concluded the request to bring Benjamin back was because of their harsh treatment of Joseph. Now they attribute finding money. And this is God. I think the Lord is against us. And the brothers know the reality is that God's against them and they might be able to fool their father with a little bit of goat blood on a on a tunic, but, but God knows all things, doesn't He? Richard Sibbs, one of the great Puritans, said, Conscience holds court in the human heart. It's the register to record what we've done in exact detail. Jeremiah 1. It's the accuser that lodges a complaint against us when we're guilty. It's the defender when to side with us in innocence. It acts as a witness, giving testimony for or against us. It's the judge condemning or vindicating us. And it's the executioner smiting us with grief when our guilt is discovered. Sib said that a man who has violated his conscience is privy to a flash of hell. You ever lived with a defiled conscience? Probably before you came to the Lord. It's a, it's a flash of hell because it's privy to all of our secret thoughts and motives. It is therefore more accurate and more formidable witness in the soul's courtroom than any external observer. Have you ever had someone come to you whenever you're, you're pouring out your soul, you're asking them to pray for you, but you, they don't know all of the details, and they say to you, no, I mean... You're good. It's it's all right. You know, just take this to the Lord. And you're going, no, no. You find no comfort in that because your conscience knows. An external observer doesn't know what your own heart knows. And, And if you've ever felt the weight of a guilty conscience that's been inflamed by God, it's unbelievable. I mean, if you want to read about it, go to Psalm 32 where David says, Blessed is the man. Sin's forgiven. And he can say he's blessed because he goes on to describe what it was like. He said, when I was silent, my bones waxed away. My tongue curled like I was in the middle of the desert, parched. And he said it was like a dam building up pressure. The guilt felt like his bones were wasting away. Then, he says, then I confessed. And it's a wonderful thing. To have a guilty conscience cleansed by the forgiveness of Jesus, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing like it. It's been described in a number of different ways. The old man, I've shared with you before, I don't even know where I heard it, but I love it. The old man, the old timer came to Christ and the preacher stuck a microphone in his face like sometimes they do and say, you know, you want to say anything? How do you feel? And the old man said, I'm not much with words. All I can say is, I've washed with all kinds of soap before, but I ain't never felt this clean. Have you felt the cleansing power of Jesus' blood? Have you felt the being, knowing you're the vilest sinner and now you've been made white, you've been made white like snow? It's an amazing thing. 
The guilty conscience can be cleansed by the forgiveness of Christ. Listen to Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, how much more than the blood of bulls and goats, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The context is the continual offerings during the Mosaic Law could never take away the guilt of sin. Every time they saw the offering, what the Jew was to think was, I am not cleansed. It's not done. Something still has to take place. It's a reminder that sin remained. But it's not so with Jesus. The Son sets you free. You're free indeed. If your conscience has been cleansed by Christ, you know that all of your sin has been paid for. Jesus can quench the flames of a guilty conscience because He satisfied God's requirement once for all time. Notice too in that Hebrews passage that is to serve the living God. God intends you, your conscience to be freed so you can serve Him. It may seem spiritual. It may seem right to beat yourself up or to do penance. And somehow you're paying for your sin by feeling really guilty and, and you're going you know, to pray, you're going to fast, you're going to do whatever that may seem spiritual. But it's really not. It's not helpful for you to always be fretting about whether you've done enough or done right or otherwise because it hinders your service because you're always focused on yourself. If the majority of your time is spent focused inward rather than upward or outward, there's a problem. If you constantly play mental Olympics, now I don't mean there's a problem in that you're not saved, I just mean that you need to, you need to ask God to help you focus on the finished work of Christ and not on your guilty conscience, not on, not on what you do or what you need to do. If what goes through your mind all the time is, is I ought and I should and, and I didn't, something needs to, to be added there. There's, there's a page that needs to be turned because it hinders you if you're always focused on yourself. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right now, there's no condemnation. That doesn't mean that God wants you to go out and feel free to sin. God wants you to feel free to go out and serve because Jesus has paid for your sin. And confession focuses you on Christ, and that's where we need to look. And while you may find cleansing from God... It may not mean that you don't have to still do a few hard things. Look at verse 29. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan and told him all that happened to them. Don't you know that that was not something they were looking forward to doing? What do you think the first thing Jacob asked? Sees them coming. Ah, they got the grain. One, two, three, four, five, nine. And 
They share with their father what happened, and they leave out a number of important facts. You can see their guilty conscience. You can see that they're timid by what they say and what they don't say. They soften Joseph's demands. The man who's the Lord of the land spoke to us roughly, took us in spies, and we said we're honest, we're not spies, we're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father in the land of Canaan today. And then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine. Go to your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, and I shall know that you're not spies, but that you are honest men. Twice he repeats that they repeat the honest part in this rendering to Jacob. And I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. They soften Joseph's demand. Simeon is left. The Hebrew word is, leave him here. They don't say anything about him being bound right in front of their eyes, imprisoned. They say nothing about them being put in prison for three days. They say nothing about their guilty consciences. They say nothing about the fact that they remembered. I mean, we think that this happened to us because of what we did to Joseph, because they haven't told their dad that. They say nothing about Reuben's self-justification. And most importantly, they say nothing about finding the money in their sacks. Look at verse 35. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks. (laughs) That surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. (gasps) What is that? And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And now you're back to the fear part. What were they afraid of? They knew. Jacob thought some things about him and didn't trust him. They were afraid. They hadn't learned a thing and they're still defiled. Why were they afraid? Because the money undermines their credibility that they were just victims of circumstance. And every time they have left home, they return with one less brother and a little more money. Hmm might be a problem with the brothers. And it can hardly be a coincidence. And Jacob bursts out, bursts out an accusation and says, something is not right. You get verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin and all these things are against me. The whole world's against me. You, you've done this to me. Look what you've done. You've made me childless. And he gives them no time to explain. He accuses them immediately of foul play. And then Reuben goes back to his old tricks. Look at 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Reuben saves the day. He says, I'll take responsibility for Benjamin. I'll go rescue Simeon. And if I fail to bring him back, kill two of my four sons. It's a foolish oath. 
motivated by self-justification and a desire to be the hero for his father. I mean, how would Jacob killing his two grandsons make up for losing his two sons, the brothers killing the two other brothers? I mean, it didn't make sense. Yeah, kill. go ahead, I'll kill my grandsons. And that's somehow going to make me feel better. Jacob rejects the proposal outright. Look at verse 38. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should belong, should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair and sorrow to the grave. He rejects the proposal outright, speaks to the whole group. Notice a couple of things in what Joseph or Jacob says here in verse 38. He calls Benjamin my son, not your brother. He calls Joseph his brother, not your brother. And he says Benjamin is the only one left. He is left alone. The only one of Rachel's son, the one that sons that the wife that Rachel, that Jacob loved dearly, and he's basically saying, "You may be willing to sacrifice your sons, but I'm unwilling to sacrifice mine." And sending him with you all is exactly what that would be like. Ouch! And we're back to where we started. As the chapter began. The brothers still have a bad report. Jacob still has a favorite and doesn't trust them. And there's a famine. They just have a little bit more grain to make it a little bit longer. The only thing that's different is now there's nine brothers. Simeon's in Egypt. We'll have to wait till we get to 43 to, to see. As Stephen said, God bringing the family, healing the family, bringing them back together. found an interesting quote by Samuel Rutherford. He said, Duties are ours, events are God's. Duties are ours, events are God's. When our faith goes to meddle with events and to hold account upon God's providence and beginneth to say... How will you do this or that? We lose ground. We have, we have nothing to do there. It's not our business to go there, he's saying. It is our part to let the Almighty exercise His own office and steer His own helm. There is nothing left for us but to see how we may be approved of Him, how we may roll the weight of our weak souls upon Him who is God omnipotent. And when we... Go astray, it shall neither be our sin nor our cross. It's a powerful quote. Some guidance on how to live. Duty is ours. Events are God's. What you need to do, and I'm paraphrasing, is go to Christ and the cross, and then if you go astray, the sin will not be on your account, nor the cross will be on your account, because Jesus has already taken care of it. You have a guilty conscience? 
you're sitting there listening and you go through the list, you'll, you'll find that there's defensiveness and fear and blame shifting. But ultimately, you'll know that the person that you're not right with is the Lord. And you won't be effective serving Him if you remain there. So He says, Confess your sin. And if you do, He's what? Faithful and just. He's faithful every single time. He'll not reject you. He'll not turn you away. And He is just to forgive you. He's not just overlooking it because Jesus has already paid for it. And He'll give you a clean conscience and a new start. And it is a wonderful thing when the blood of Jesus washes the vile sinner clean. Amen?